The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Scorebox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. G7 leaders kick off their summit in Hiroshima with the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky reportedly set to attend in person as Western allies harden their resolve against Russia. A U.S. debt ceiling bill could be put to a vote as early as next week as hopes grow the White House and Congress will strike a deal in order to avoid a default before the June 1st deadline. Wall Street tracks towards its best week since March, while in Asia, Japan's Nikkei 225 hits its highest level since 1990. Retail detail, Alibaba sinks after missing sales expectations amid concerns over the health of the Chinese consumer. But stateside, Walmart ups its guidance after reporting a stellar first quarter. G7 leaders have descended on Hiroshima for a summit that is set to be dominated by Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine and China's growing global influence. The leaders of Indonesia, Australia, Brazil, Comoros, Cook Islands, India, South Korea and Vietnam will attend, reflecting a desire by G7 countries to reach out to strategically important countries. Additional military support for Ukraine will also be discussed. EU Council President Charles Michel outlined the balance European countries are trying to strike in their relationship with Beijing. We have an interest in stable economic relations. We don't want to decouple, but the risk to reduce our dependencies and diversify to address unfair practices. We balance our trade relationship is what we must do and create a true level playing field for our companies and for our workers. We also need to engage together with China on global challenges, climate change, conservation of natural resources, biodiversity, debt sustainability. Given, given its role in the international community and the size of its economy, China has a special responsibility in the world. It has to play by international rules and we call on China to press Russia to stop its military aggression. On Taiwan, we maintain our one-China policy, no unilateral change of the status quo. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and we'll do some of this with uh, our, our anchor correspondent in uh, Hiroshima in a few moments' time. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will attend the G7 in person uh, this weekend, according to multiple reports. It comes after the Ukrainian leader visited the UK Germany, Italy and France this week in a bid to secure uh, further military support ahead of the country's expected counteroffensive against Russian forces. Well, Martin, it, it doesn't do you justice to call you a correspondent. Martin, you are one of the senior anchors of this channel and you're at the G7 now with plenty more. Martin, it's not just about the lovely headline statements uh, from the 
the G7, and you and I have been to enough of these over the years to know it's about adherence to these protestations, adherence to these new um, ideas. Uh, and is the adherence with current sanctions actually an issue, as well as giving new sanctions uh, to, to the situation to the Russians? It is, Steve, and good morning, uh, Steve and uh, Karen, as well as uh, Jeff. You know, it's interesting you raised that because we just talked to the folks over at the G7 Research Group earlier this morning based at the University of Toronto, and they like to describe themselves as uh, uh, the, uh, I guess, uh, the, the overseer of uh, corporate, uh, excuse me, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, government, of governance, uh, rather. And basically they track, among other things, what the G7 leaders, what they say. And remember, these guys are politicians. What they say, what they promise, are they able to deliver? And according to them and their research, uh, they hit around the 90% uh, level. So at least statistically, it uh, sounds uh, pretty good. But uh, Steve, I want to back up a little bit and flesh out the news about uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, uh, first. Uh, again, we've got multiple media outlets over the last hour or so reporting that uh, Zelensky will be coming here, will be attending the G7 summit. Uh, it's the New York Times, it's Reuters, it's the Wall Street Journal, uh, etc. And the date we expect him here is Sunday, which we th would be the last day of this uh, three-day summit here in Hiroshima. And obviously he's going to be lobbying for more assistance and support, uh, military material uh, as well. And that is one thread of the theme of de-risking Russia. Well, obviously the G7 is trying to continue aiding and assisting Ukraine any way that it can. Uh, at the same time, they're trying to turn the screws tighter on Russia. And in that regard, uh, that soundbite you played from Charles Michel just a few seconds ago, the president of the European Council, another part of that interview, Michel talked about how they are hunting down or tracking down as part of efforts to try and tighten the noose on sanctions evasion, evasion of Russian sanctions, tracking Russian diamonds outbound. So what they actually end up doing will it be a ban Will it be a cap? We simply don't know, but they are looking very closely and targeting at the flow, targeting the flow of Russian diamonds out of the country as a source of revenue for Vladimir Putin in order for him to continue financing this ongoing war in Ukraine, which is now coming to, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, it's 16th uh, month. Uh, as far as de-risking China, very quickly, we talked about this, uh, these two strands or these two ideas. Uh, I, just last week, I remember when we were in uh, Niigata, and that is watch for action and movement on this idea to ban exports to China. EU apparently not on board with this, neither is Russia. Will they be able to achieve consensus? We'll be watching. And it's the final statement, the final communique we'll be watching very closely for mention of that as well. This whole idea of restricting FDI, foreign direct investment, into China. Obviously it's happened already with regards to uh, semiconductors. Will it happen with other things? Uh, could it be uh, rare earth minerals, uh, things that go into EV batteries? We don't know, but again, uh, more work is being done to de-risk China. What they actually end up agreeing on, we'll see in the final statement. But as I mentioned a couple of days ago when we were in Niigata, it did not feature, oddly enough, in the final statement coming out of the finance ministers at Central Bank Governors meeting. Neither did, for that matter, the, the debt crisis. Uh, but, you know, uh, Vladimir Zelensky's uh, appearance here, if indeed he does show uh, come Sunday, uh, that's going to have a lot of I dare say, uh, I might even say celebrity uh, power, right? Uh, we talked about how Biden, there have been questions about whether he would uh, arrive or would have to bail on this uh, summit because of the debt crisis in the U.S. Obviously, he's here, so he's uh, showed up. But, uh, you know, now I think the attention is going to turn to Vladimir Zelensky. 
whether or not he actually ends up showing up at the summit. Guys, back to you. Marty, um, superb reporting as ever, and we, we love your coverage. But just, just in terms of your shot, I don't know if we can just go on to a single of Martin. Over your right-hand shoulder on camera left, is that the Hiroshima Peace Memorial? Because that is the most extraordinary live shot, if that is. And, of course, how poignant at this time of geopolitical tension to see the building that was the original prefectural industrial promotion hall, but then since became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. An extraordinary sight and very poignant. And an extraordinary, I don't know if our cameraman can go in on it at all. Yeah, let's do that. That's just over my right shoulder, uh, Steve. And Hide, my cameraman, if we can just uh, zoom in, let me step aside, let you get a closer look at what you're talking about, uh, Steve. Yes, you're right. It's a UNESCO heritage site. It is what remains, the skeletal remains, literally, of a building, a Western European-style building, which back in the day had been used as sort of a, I guess, uh, an export promotion uh, center, right? All the goods that came out of Hiroshima, they would be displayed on uh, tables and on shelves for, for people to look at and consider buying. That is what is left uh, after the bombing of Hiroshima and three days later, Nagasaki, uh, the first time ever this destructive a device invented by humans had, had ever been actually used. And the devastation caused, I, I have to speak to that as well. After the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki 78 years ago, just three days apart, August 6th and August 9th, the death count reaching nearly a quarter million people, 250,000 people. And that skeletal structure that we're looking at, that dome, I think is also poignant uh, because the reason that it is still standing, and we can see at least some part of it, is because the bombing was, the situation in terms of uh, the fallout was very different from, let's say, Chernobyl, right? Chernobyl was ground level and spread out from there. In the case of this bombing, it was dropped from 31,000 feet. It exploded or detonated at uh, 1,500 feet. And the intention of the Americans, of course, was a as wide a dispersion of destruction as possible. Uh, so it's reinforced concrete. It's steel. Everything else within about a five-mile radius of that structure you're seeing behind me was absolutely flattened, which is why Prime Minister Kishida of Japan uh, is pushing very hard uh, for uh, nuclear non-proliferation talks to continue and also nuclear de-escalation talks to continue. And we tie this into the threat of de-risking Russia because obviously Vladimir Putin has threatened to use uh, theater tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine We've got closer to Japan, of course, closer to uh, this summit. North Korea, more belligerent uh, than ever with this nuclear program and its testing regime. And we should not forget China. It is ramping up, building up its nuclear arsenal at an almost frightening pace. It is obviously also a nuclear power. So this whole theme of after Hiroshima, after Nagasaki, never again is very much part of the two themes here at uh, the G7 summit of de-risking Russia as well as de-risking China. Back to you. Martin, that was absolutely fantastic. And, and just for our viewers' sake, they had no idea that you had no idea and your excellent cameraman had no idea I was going to ask you about that. So fantastic visually and, and indeed very poignant what you had to say there. Thank you very much indeed. And, and Karen, I think you tell me that Mr. Biden is going to be visiting yes, uh, the um, peace memorial. G7 leaders have been at the, the peace memorial, so they've been uh, wandering around paying their respects, laying wreaths. So you have seen that in some of the, the photo op material, but also just worth noting the Prime Minister Kishida is actually from Hiroshima. So uh, there are a lot of links that. here. Um, let's get some more coverage of G7 from Stephen Nagy, who is the professor of international at the Pre International Christian University. Uh, Stephen, um, very poignant coverage there from Martin as well. Look, 
I want to ask you specifically about what the G7 is achieving and what the G7 isn't achieving this time around. Just really on those two points, what do you think? Well, the G7, this this uh, summit is going to focus on, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and having a cohesive and collective stance to push back against Russia's invasion. It's also going to talk about economic coercion from China and how to work together to prevent that coercion and to push China to be uh, what we call a responsible stakeholder. That means not pushing a forced reunification with Taiwan, which would be highly destabilizing for the regional economy and the global economy. Um, they are also going to push towards uh, denuclearization, or at least uh, trying to put, push back against the uh, tactical deployment of nuclear weapons in Belarus by Russia, the expansion of, of China's nuclear arsenal to about 1,500 by 2035, and of course, as Martin mentioned, uh, the weapons proliferation by North Korea. They have a lot on the table. I think they are going to come to uh, a cohesive stance and uh, President Zelensky's uh, visit on Sunday will be uh, really uh, consolidating uh, these three positions. Stephen, um, on, on the key issue, I mean, there are a lot of key issues you've, you've highlighted there. Um, I don't see any hope at all of China thinking all of a sudden, oh, goodness me, we must follow a G7 line. We must follow a Western line. We must take our lead uh, from the initiatives coming out from the West as well. China's position, though, is ambivalent. What is China's position, as far as you can see, in terms of its relationship with the G7 and indeed those policies being pushed? China sees the G7 as an elite clique that is has a Cold War mentality that is aiming to contain China. Uh, and you're right. I don't think that if, uh, the G7 is going to be able to push or cajole China to move its position vis-a-vis -vis Russia. But that being said, China is an export superpower. It doesn't have domestic consumption to keep its economy going. And if the G7 and other members of the Western uh, world do pull back from their economy, this will have a dreadful effect on the, the, the sacred social economic growth that the Chinese Communist Party has nurtured for 40 years. Uh, this is their Achilles heel. And I think that they will step back. They will try to find a, a a constructive role vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, but that doesn't mean throwing Russia onto the bus. Uh, China sees Russia as a key partner in pushing back against US-led um, pressure on China to shape its behavior. It's a complex equation, but again, I think that China understands that its prosperity and stable social economic growth is not going to be related to, to Russia. It's going to be related to open access to markets with Europe, with the United States, with Canada, and with other Western states. Stephen, can we talk about the shine coming off of the Russian diamond market as well? That's the latest stepped up for sanctions that the G7 is talking about. And interestingly, we just played a clip of Charles Michel, who is a Belgium politician, the, the head of the European Council. But it was Belgium who's been a big importer of Russian diamonds still that wanted a global approach. What signaling are we getting in terms of how the sanctions will still play a pivotal role from here for the G7 and beyond? Thanks, Karen. So what we're seeing is that the uh, United, uh, EU and United States and other countries really are finding ways to uh, squeeze uh, the, squeeze uh, Vladimir Putin's regime, ensure that they're not getting hard currency to keep the economy going. And what we're going to see over the coming year is more tactical deployment of sanctions and financial constrictions on the Chinese, uh, on the Russian economy to make it much more difficult to prosecute the war against Ukraine. A part of this 
I assume will be putting pressure on, on China and other partners as well to ensure that China does not trade with Russia, does not provide technology to Russia, and does not provide a lifeline to um, Vladimir Putin's uh, 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 war machine that is in, has invaded Ukraine. And again, we're going to see this uh, tactical approach and seeing what works to ensure that we can push back against this um, this aggression. Stephen, I also want to ask you about China. There's been a huge uh, move to try and counter some of the might that many see of China on a, a military side, on, on a, an AI technology side, and in terms of a challenger as a, the factory to the world. What do you anticipate to come out of the G7 that would be significant for investors at this point? Well, I, as uh, if I was an investor, I'd be looking at three different areas. First is the selective diversification away from China in terms of supply chains. What that means doesn't mean uh, decouple from China. It means making China uh, buy Chinese for Chinese with German technologies, with Japanese technology, so they can insulate their businesses from the geopolitical pressures that uh, the Chinese government may push. Uh, we're going to see uh, resilience initiatives. So again, try to create more resilience in supply chains, and that means my migrating some of those supply chains to Southeast Asia and South Asia. Uh, important destinations, maybe India, maybe Vietnam, maybe Indonesia. Uh, and guess what? They're guests at the uh, G7 summit uh, this time around. We're going to also see semiconductor cooperation. And just uh, yesterday, we saw semiconductor leaders visit uh, Tokyo uh, from Seoul, from uh, the Netherlands, from uh, the United States and from Taiwan. And we're going to see some initiatives to relocate some of those critical semiconductor uh, supply chains to Tokyo and to, uh, or to Japan and to other uh, safe safer uh, or like-minded countries to keep those critical semiconductors moving forward. Um, last thing, I think importantly, we're going to see some initiatives on uh, pushing back against economic coercion. And this is going to be a great relief to countries like South Korea, Australia, Canada, uh, and Japan that have really been uh, bystanders or victims of China's economic coercion. Those are three areas that I'd look at. Uh, keep your eyes open because I think there's going to be some really interesting initiatives being put forward by the G7. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, very much appreciate your time today. Stephen Necker with us, <laughs> Professor, International Christian University. And I think a very good point that the professor just brought up there about why some of the smaller nations are there. It's actually quite fascinating because we always pivot towards the, the big nations there. But there was another name. I was wondering why they were present. Comoros, uh, apparently because they are the chair of the African Union. Of course, so that is a big deal. We're yeah, about the war in Ukraine. I'm, I'm just very brief. I know we've got to move on, but th th there has been a, a problem in the West that uh, when, let's put it bluntly, the former imperial powers decided to concentrate and navel gaze at their own domestic areas and refused to actually look at what was going on in the... Uh, the emerging economies as well, that left the gap for other nations, perhaps totalitarian regimes, to actually fill that gap as well. And all of a sudden, Europe is suddenly realising whether it's on immigration, whether it's on imports, whether it's on rare earths, whether it's on geopolitical issues as well, maybe they do need to engage better with emerging nations in key areas such as Africa and key areas such as Asia. So all of a sudden, the West is interested in emerging nations all over again because the Chinese and others have filled the gap. Yeah, and of course, we're talking about a lot of very poor nations across Africa that have been imp impacted by inflation. The grain deal in the past few days has been very significant for some of these areas of the world too. Well, coming up on the show, debt ceiling discussions appear to near their end, but will a deal be signed off before the 1st of June deadline? We'll bring you the latest after the break. And for more on the G7 summit and what we can expect from leaders out of Hiroshima, uh, check out the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be back after a short break.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, we're going to go through some of the economic data in a moment. Karen's going to read that. So I'll just, just talk about these markets specifically. These are stratospheric moves we're seeing this year, given the wealth of worries. At the moment, the market is reacting on a hair trigger or, or, to basically news out of the debt ceiling. But, but let's just be brutally honest about it, everybody. Once the debt ceiling is solved, and we, I think the, the, the preponderance, the bell curve scenario at the moment is that we think it's going to be solved and there'll be a vote and it'll go through and then we can kick it into long grass about the longer term debt picture. But the fact of the matter is that leaves us worrying about the US economy uh, and the other factors. That leaves us worrying about inflation, about interest rates, about a recession as well. And the fact that these markets are rallying so aggressively with that in mind is a great worry for many people. Big piece on the FT today about how Carl Icahn and his bearish bet has cost him billions of dollars uh, over the last few years. And the fact of the matter is you can totally understand why Carl Icahn has taken on that positioning as well. There are a lot of things to worry about, a lot of things to be concerned about. And as such, the wall of worry has been climbed in some fashion. The Nasdaq is absolutely surging. I think now the Nasdaq and the uh, S&P were at the highest level since August 2022. Uh, And as guest after guest after guest comes on this channel and says, yeah, we don't necessarily uh, understand why the market's so high. We actually think maybe the market fundamentals aren't that great. But, and then actually the valuations are 18, 19 times forward and, and more so on individual stocks as well. We think they're a bit fruity as well. Is that setting us up for a fall? Or actually, are we going to push on from here regardless of that short-term valuation concern? At the moment, it looks like the latter, because once again, what is the economic data telling us? Well, some of it, some of the surveys remain pretty bearish. The home sales data this week, I thought the existing home sales, again, not that great. But when you look at the job list, and I won't spend too much time because we are coming to that. Yes, it's ticking up the weekly job list figures, but these are not stratospheric inclines we're seeing on weekly job lists. Anyway, so the Nasdaq once again leading the fray, the Dow being the laggard, technology sector was up 2.1%, utilities for the week down 4.2%. So you can see what people think there uh, in terms of the positioning. Tech, uh, strong, strong buyers, utilities, fairly solid selling as well. Moving on to the treasuries, the yields are picking up across the board as well. We've now got a 4.25 handle on the 10-year, I beg pardon, we haven't on the 10-year, that would be interesting, on the two-year, on the 10-year 3.64 as well. I'm not going to whiz to the dollar cross as well because there's a lot going on here as well, including the yuan being under significant pressure versus the greenback. We've now got a seven handle on that as well. Again, Karen's mentioned it already this show. I will continue to mention it. What is happening with this Japanese Chinese reopening story? There are big, big questions about whether the focus on the services side, the focus on the consumer, is that actually happening? And again, we'll talk about Alibaba later on as well, because once again, there are concerns. So the dollar continues to rally. And that, again, is a much played trade at the moment. So many of you out there are pessimistic on the dollar, and yet it continues to rally. For the week, it has put on nearly another 1%, 0.8% at the moment. So the euro, which was trading 110, is now down to 107. The pound that was 126, touching 127, now down to 123. By the way, coincidentally, the pound has fallen from its highs at the same time that everybody closed their bearish bets on it.
Nice one, eh? Uh, dollar yen trading 138. So once again, the dollar pushing higher, the yen getting closer and closer to 140 in those areas where people start saying, how far can we push this? Are the policymakers, are the BOJ going to let this happen? Yeah, they are at the moment. Oil remains fascinating. Let's have a look at where the oil price is trading. And I should just briefly have a notable reference to gold, which has had a pretty hard week as well, as some of those inflationary concerns come off as well. So we've got Brent trading near the top of the recent range, around about half a, a, a buck off that recent high, $77. Uh, and WTI crude, again, seems fairly underpinned at 70, doesn't it, if we are going to get some form of SPR refill below 70, but no sign of that either at the moment. 72.41 is where WTI is trading as we speak. And interesting to see you don't often well you do see often but it's interesting to note that commodities and the dollar rising at the same time well speaks volumes let's have a look at the asian indices and where they're currently trading uh we have a decline on the hang sang and i think that's very notable and i'm pretty sure jp ong thinks it's notable as well he joins us from singapore and is going to tell you far more than i will ever know about the uh, asian markets nice to see you sir Nice to see you as well, uh, Stephen. We have to start in Japan also, taking out the Nikkei 225 rallying today. And what a, time, what a day to be in Japan, not just because of the G7 summit in Hiroshima, but also because of just how strong and confident Japanese markets are doing. Now, today's rally is very interesting because you did reference the dollar-yen actually looking a bit firmer today. Now, whenever you see the yen appreciate, it tends to weigh and keep sentiment for a lot of the exporters on the Nikkei 225 in check and also weighs on the broader Tokyo benchmark. But that is not the case today, Steve. We're actually seeing the Nikkei 225 going from strength to strength. They're up 0.8% at 30,823. To put this in context, you'll have to go back to mid-1990 when during the time of pagers and fax machines to see the Japanese Nikkei 225 at these levels. It's at this highest levels since mid-1990, it's in the mid-1990s, and a lot of confidence coming back to Japanese equity markets. Now, you might say that the seeds were planted after Warren Buffett took on the issue that vote of confidence for the Japanese trading houses a couple of months ago, but we're starting to see signs uh, of e an evidence backing that bet up. Actually, we saw Japan's GDP growing faster than expected, 1.6% when it was released a couple of days ago. A very strong earnings season for Japanese corporates and hopes that this will see bigger shareholder returns. And also signs, at least, of Japanese consumption. Household spending is strong, it's at strongest levels in about two years. And core CPI for Japan actually coming up to about 3.4% on a year-on-year -year basis um, for the month of April also hinting at signs that there is strong consumer sentiment and strong economic growth in Japan that will carry into the corporates. And that's why we're seeing a lot of bets and a lot of upside bets on some of these big Japanese corporations. Now, going back to that core CPI print, this is significantly higher than uh, the Bank of Japan's own uh, target of about 2% and thus also raising bets that maybe this will give the Bank of Japan a little bit of room to actually tweak some of the policy settings that's kept, it, uh, kept their policy uh, stance ultra low. And we're seeing it actually play out also with, with some of these big uh, companies in Japan. But again, as we mentioned, not everybody is a winner, actually. In fact, the banks in Japan continue to stay a bit subdued in today's session. Mitsubishi UFJ and Sumitomo Mitsui both down, actually, considerably. But we're also seeing signs of the rally in chip stocks in Japan as Prime Minister Funui Kishida tries to generate more investments in the chip sector in Japan from some of the big companies like TSMC and Samsung and Micron, for instance. We're starting to see signs of that rally that's lifted Advantas in Tokyo 
Tokyo Electron, starting to perhaps show signs of it being on its last legs. Advantage down by about 2.4% in today's session, and thus also raising the question, if you have the Nikkei 225 at those high levels, could there actually this is, could this be as good as it gets, and could we actually start to see things start to reverse for Jap- Japanese markets and the Nikkei 225? But so far, if you're in Japanese stocks, there's one word to describe how they're doing today and over the last couple of days, and that is Oishi. Karen? Thank you very much, JP. Uh, that is a stunning uh, trade, isn't it, as we're watching what's been playing out there in Japan. Let's move on and take a look at the big overarching issue for markets. A U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he is optimistic that an agreement on raising or suspending the debt ceiling could be reached as soon as next week. Speaking to reporters, McCarthy refused to give any details about discussions, but said congressional leaders and the White House were in a much better place than a few days ago. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris spoke to community leaders and urged them to support the deal and asked members of Congress to do the same. America must pay our bills, just like you and your family and other hardworking Americans do every single day. And Congress must not create this crisis, which is why President Biden and I met with our four congressional leaders Tuesday here at the White House. We had a productive conversation. Uh, We believe that it occurred in good faith with all the leaders in that meeting agreeing that America will not default. During that meeting, the president and the Speaker of the House designated senior members of our teams who will continue to negotiate. They met yesterday and they will continue to meet. And right now, we just need you, the leaders on this call, to do what you always do and make sure your voices are heard. Right. uh, Let's go back to this data. I think it's very, very interesting data yesterday. UK... Let me try again. U.S. weekly jobless claims fell more than expected, dipping 22,000 to a seasonally adjusted 242,000 last week. Now, that's fascinating because where is the big increase in joblessness? It ain't happening yet. Continuing claims also sank more than expected to 1.79 million. Now, the labor market remains tight with 1.6 job openings for every person looking for a position in March. Huge number. Uh, Home prices, though, did fall, uh, the most in 11 years last month, down 1.7% on the year to a median $388,800. That is the biggest decline since January 2012. Meanwhile, existing home sales declined for the 14th month in 15, down 3.4% on the month. Very quick word from me is the fact that the data remains ambiguous. Uh, And I, I think the markets are getting this No, they're not getting it wrong. The market's always right. Whatever move it is, that is what the market is. But the fact of the matter is, the market is saying, if we get rid of the debt ceiling issue, we are off to the races. That's pretty much what it seems to be implying at the moment. But I don't believe that for one moment. Uh, Again, market is what it is. But if we get the debt ceiling solved, which there is a high preponderance, high probability we will next week, you've still got a multitude of issues, as shown by that data. If the employment situation remains tight, I can't see the catalyst for the uh, futures uh, being accurate in terms of the number of interest rate hikes that they're expecting. Uh, But if that isn't the case, and actually the recessionary indicators pick up, then you've got another whole set of problems. The wage price spiral has even reared its head in the UK this week. We've seen Andrew Bailey talking about it. So 
also that challenge that of wages that keep on going up, they remain high, that people keep on spending and you can't crack down on some of the heat that is in the prices uh, that we are seeing in various different parts of the economy. In terms of the house price story, this is pivotal as well. You think about the components in the inflation basket that have been particularly sticky at this point. It's the housing side and what we saw in the data, a fall that was encouraging. But keep in mind that a fall of 1.7% is slight, 388,000 plus where the average uh, house price is now. Back in 2020, not so long ago, the average price was 230,000. Wow. So that's 150,000 more in the space of about three years. So th- by percentage terms, that is a huge step up in the increase. A- in terms of what you're seeing from some of the large institutional investors, apparently they think the pricing is steep now. So in fact, some of them becoming net sellers, uh, those uh, in, the, in the market not buying homes, but you're still seeing the heat, I think, in the retail customer who wants to change homes that you know want to be in the market been holding off for a while they are bidding up and you're still seeing a lot of that pricing pressure and of course it's reflected then the rental side too which is where you're seeing that inflation component yeah and look the 30-year mortgage rate in the states is still elevated i mean it's off its most recent high but i'm just looking again uh, the latest figure i've seen is still somewhere in the region of seven percent which is an enormous increase uh, over the last couple of years well so affordability as you quite rightly say Uh, is challenging both on the price of the absolute purchase and indeed the financing of your loan going forward. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.